You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5 It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I, ha- I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's, that's a big one, right? <laughs> Everybody's like, what did we walk into today? Uh, I think I'm going to skip church, go to brunch. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and Corinthians is a, a book written by Paul, the apostle, to the church in Corinth. And we talked about this, and we're going to continue to see this. The church in Corinth is a mess. And Paul starts off his letter in chapter 1, though, basically saying, not I hate you, you're awful, but hey, let's look at Jesus. He loves you, and I love you. So that's how we look at the mess of life. And this series is even called... Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, how grace puts the pieces together. That's what grace does. That's what God does. But in the middle of that, Paul's like, hey, let's stop focusing on self and pride. Let's look at Jesus, and now let's listen. Let's be ready to consume spiritual food. We talked about that the last few weeks. Let's get ready to receive and listen, right? So he goes from that, get ready to receive and listen, to, um, I've heard about your sexual problems. (laughs) Um, There's somebody in the church who is sleeping with his father's wife. So the guy is sleeping with his stepmom in the church of Corinth, right? And he says, you've become arrogant about this, as if it's something good. Even the pagans don't like this. He's saying to them, I want, I want, I want you to see what's happening here, that in pagan culture, I mean, there was orgies, there was sacrifices, there was all these different gods, and even they would say, uh, you don't sleep with your dad's wife, that's weird, right? Nobody agrees with me this morning, I see a lot of, eh, maybe, <laughs> that's kind of scary, uh, maybe I need to preach this to us right now. <laughs> but it was, it was like, hey, even they think that's wrong, there's a moral compass that they have developed, and they're pagans, and they say that wrong. that's wrong. You in the church, because now you're enlightened and smart, there's a guy sleeping with his dad's wife, his stepmom, and nobody's, like, doing anything about it. In fact, you've become puffed up and arrogant. What does that mean? See, the church actually began to think that they have discovered this new way of grace. And that means we throw out all the moral codes of our past thoughts. So because I've discovered Jesus in grace, and I'm so, because what were we talking about last few weeks? Pride, arrogance, they couldn't be taught anything. They've discovered grace, and now they're saying the moral compass of yesterday means nothing. We're covered in grace, we do whatever we want, we are now spiritually enlightened. That's what they're saying to themselves. We're sinning a lot, and it's because we're very smart and enlightened, we're very spiritual. That's why that doesn't matter that he's doing that, right? The whole table was flipped upside down. He's like, you do not understand what you're doing. You are not enlightened. It's a mess. I feel like, and I I know some parts of this message, I I, I need you to intentionally tune in today because there are parts of this message that might feel very heavy. 
But I'm telling you, today's church often falls into the same thing, that we get grace and then we fail to address sin. We feel like we're more enlightened. Well, they might have looked at that sin as wrong 50 years ago or 60 years ago or even my grandmother. It was, a, it was a big deal to them. But to me, we're enlightened and we're under grace so we can do whatever we want to do. Does that sound? Okay, a few of you are willing to nod your head. Like, yeah, that sounds kind of right. Okay. Today's church often fails to address sin and we call it grace. Or we say that was the law. We're no longer under the law. We're better than that. God still has a way that leads to life, and there's still sin that leads to death. Correct? Sin always produces death. I might get to heaven because of the cross. Because of grace, I might still make it to heaven. But that doesn't mean that I can't bring death and destruction into my world now because of my current sin. Make sense? Grace covers a multitude of sins, but sin still leads to death. And I, my sins cause a ripple effect to those around me. Whether I'm in grace or not, whether I'm in Christ or not, if I choose to sin today and repent of it, there's still a ripple effect, right, in this world. That's what Paul was looking at. He's saying, look, you've become so arrogant to think that it doesn't matter that this is happening in the church. It does matter. In fact, remove him, hand him over to Satan, right? What does that mean? That does not mean this guy in the church really annoys me. Here, Satan, take him, burn him. That's not what it means at all. That's not what he's talking about. We cannot walk around just handing people over to Satan. Just because they annoy us. I want to explain what's happening here. What does it mean to hand somebody over to Satan? So you have the body of Christ. We are what? We are his temple. We are his dwelling place. We are where he abides. And what Paul tells them to do when this unrepentant sinner in your midst who refuses to repent, in fact, he's arrogant about his sin, when he doesn't repent, what you do is you put him out of the body of Christ and you hand him over to the dominion of Satan. That's outside of the church. He's cut off from membership. We'll see later on as we read through the rest of this chapter. It says don't even eat with him. Don't, eat, don't even sit down with him. Because he needs to feel what it's like outside of God's dwelling place. Out of the covenantal community of God. He needs to feel what life is like outside of that world. So inside of the world... Inside God's dwelling place, if that's us, our community, we should literally reflect his design for humanity. What is his original creation for humanity? Genesis, the Garden of Eden. The church, if we are walking in the Spirit, if we are living the way Christ has called us to live, we should feel like the Garden of Eden. We are his dwelling place. We are where his shalom abides, right? We're, we're where his grace abounds and his love abounds. We should be a place of peace and not of war. We should be a place of love and of hope and prosperity, not a place of destruction and loneliness or isolation, right? And so what he says is when somebody refuses to repent of this sin or major sins that cause devastation to the body, you need to put them outside of the church and let them experience the world outside of the church outside where rumors are, where isolation is, where pride is, where fighting is, where it's me versus you, every man for himself. Let him experience that. Does it make sense, tracking with it? He should feel the weight of loss outside of God's perfect body. 
He should feel what it's like when sin abounds. He should see that and then realize he is in sin. This is not something because he, we hate that person. It's because we want them to come to faith. What does it say there at the end of that passage? At the end of those verses. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let, put him out here so that his flesh can be corrupted. But let his spirit become alive. Now let's think about this situation for a moment. I know this is hard to do because we're talking long ago in, in, in Corinth, different culture. But think for a second, okay, you're in that culture and there's this new thing called Christians. And there's this new thing called the church. Actually, historians say this church in Corinth, most of us tend to think of it as a very large church. It's about 100 people. We're, we're basically looking at the church of Corinth. It's not a very large group, most likely. There was some really large churches, and then there were some small churches. Corinth was probably a very small church. And in that, he found life and community and friendship, right? And that's one of the things at City Lights, we, we love our home groups. We love building community. We love making this feel like family. Outside of that, it was pagan gods and a different way of living. But if you, as a that time, came into this new thing called Christianity, your family was not very accepting of you. You rejected the old gods. You rejected the old life, and you chose a new community, a new family. So here you have a guy walk into a new family, right? And what's he doing in this new family? He's sleeping with his dad's wife. And so he's in this family, and they say, no, you can't be here. What family is he walking into? Uh, dad, can I, can I live here? Or, hey, can we be a family? No, you're sleeping with my wife, son. It's kind of weird. Do you see the rejection that this guy would face? And he's left with a decision now. Is this, does, do, do my sins produce life? Do my sins give me hope? Do my sins make me feel good? They shouldn't. He should feel the weight of them. This here is not we walk around in judgment of every person, of every little thing, trying to kick everybody out of the church so that we're all the perfect people inside. That's not what this is. This is how can we get somebody to recognize they are destroying God's community and unrepentant about it. Really, the issue, one of the biggest issues, if you can look at any sin, you can trace it back to a source of pride. Pride that says, I deserve this, or I can do this, or I'm better than that. Pride is a deadly sin. And we have to rid it from our lives. Let's look at verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are, as really, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread and sincerity and truth. Some of you are thinking, what are we talking about? We went from sex to bread, and I don't know what this is about. I'm really confused. He says, this is not an issue with bread, all right? It's not like, ooh, leavened bread, evil, unleavened bread, that's the holy bread. We need to eat that. I want you to understand, to a, in the Jewish culture, which is the basis of of faith. The Old Testament, I know a lot of people don't like to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament always points toward Christ, the fulfillment, right? He is the fulfillment. And so it's good to look back and see what God has shown us, give us glimmers of in the past. And he says, remember when Israel was in bondage to Egypt 
And there was the whole Passover thing. I don't know if you guys know the story, but they took the lamb and they sacrificed the lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the angel of death came over Egypt and everyone that had that lamb's blood over them was spared, right? But the people who didn't have that, their firstborn son would die. And so when Pharaoh's firstborn son died, he let them go. He let Egypt go out of slavery. And so when they're on the road, when they're running away from slavery, they didn't have time to make meals like normal, right? So they didn't put the the yeast in, and they made unleavened bread, quick meals. They're celebrating victory. They're moving quickly. They're getting out of Egypt to the promised land. And what happens after that? It's a classic story. Moses, uh, God separating the sea, and they go through it. Egypt decides to change his mind. There is a quick pace to this. This is not, hey... We can take our good old time getting to the promised land. Egypt's coming after them. So when they begin, whenever they would celebrate Passover every year, they would celebrate and remember that journey of freedom. And they would make unleavened bread. A lot of the Passover meal is really delicious. It's really tasty. Unleavened bread, not so delicious. Not so tasty. It's not like good holy Israelites are like, we love bread that tastes like crackers. It's, this reminds us of our freedom. This is something where God has delivered us. So what he's saying to this church, he's like, we can live life where Jesus is our Passover lamb, and every day we celebrate freedom from death and destruction, sin. We were once slaves to sin, but now we're alive in Christ. We are no longer bound to sin. We are free in Christ. So now we live eating the fruit and eating the lifestyle of freedom, not the lifestyle of death. So when you live in brokenness and sexual immorality and adultery and, and lust and greed and all those things, you were eating the bread before the Passover, before freedom. That's what you were doing with your life. But when you live according to the faith in Christ, when you live in sincerity and truth, in repentance and turn toward Christ and live that lifestyle, you are celebrating every day Christ, the Passover lamb, freedom from sin. That's what he's saying to them. He's not saying, hey, you, you have gluten allergies, forget the gluten, forget the yeast. That's not what he's doing here. It's something much deeper. It's celebrating that life of freedom from sin. Does that make sense? Our lives should reflect that. It says a life of sincerity and truth. This is our life in Christ should constantly have repentance and openness in it. Not this false sort of spirituality. We do what we want. We hide our sins or we boast in our sins. And we say, I can do whatever I want. It's really recognizing the way of Christ and openly submitting to the way of Christ. Repentance. I feel like in the Protestant church or the, the evangelical church, the word repentance is a scary word because we want to demonize it because of Catholic misuse. And you go and say you're, you're, you go to confessional, you confess, you repent, and then all of a sudden you're, you're fine and that day you're sinning later, and you're like, well, I confessed this morning. We demonize it, though, in, in the Protestant church, don't we? We don't like the word repentance. We're like, well, that's something the Catholics do. No, that's something Christians do. It's something the Bible tells us to do. We should repent our sins to God first. He's the one who forgives. We're washed in grace, but there's still this act of, I repent, and God, cleanse me of this. It's David, search my heart, O oh God. Look, see if there's anything evil in me. 
And the scripture tells us to confess our sins one to another. It keeps us accountable. It keeps us encouraged. It keeps us vulnerable. It keeps us sincere and truthful. That's what the body of Christ should look like. We cannot reject sincerity and truth or repentance because we're afraid to all of a sudden be religious or Catholic or whatever our background is. That's not what I'm saying. We, can, we cannot reject something fundamental to the Christian life because it was abused in the past. Amen. Let's, let's finish this chapter here, verse 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Okay, let me pause right there. This is 1 Corinthians, but it's actually the second letter to them. So, He already wrote a letter to them before, just so you know. I wrote to you not to associate with sexual immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge evil, the evil person from among you. Okay, so apparently there was a miscommunication uh, in his first letter to them, and he had to clarify. He's like, I wasn't telling you when I said don't associate with the immoral and the sexual deviant and, and all those things. I wasn't telling you to like, hate everybody outside of the church. We have to go and love the world. We have to share the gospel to them. We have to, Jesus ate with the prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners. That's what he did. Jesus said to the the Pharisees, it's not the healthy who need a physician, it's the sick. So Paul is clarifying with them, I'm not telling you to stay away from sinners. The world is full of them and we need to reach them. That's what the mission is. The commission is to go into all the world and preach his grace, his love, his repentance, his life. That's what we do. He said, I'm telling you, inside the church, when these things happen, we need to let them know this, the unrepentant sin will not stand in God's dwelling place. God's temple is to be holy. His place is to be full of grace, but also full of repentance, where we recognize sin as sin. Make sense? The church has a responsibility to recognize sin as a cancer that's bad in the body, and then we remove it. If your doctor, if you walk into your doctor's office and he's like, well, there's something really unhealthy here, but I'd rather not tell them because that will make them really uncomfortable and they might not like me, and then they'll associate my name with this cancer that they have, and ooh, I'd rather not do that. That's what the church does a lot, right? We don't want to tell people that they're sick. And he says, look at your brother and say, look, this is death. You're bringing death to us. Now, we also know that the Scripture says, Jesus says about the speck in, a, in, in somebody else's eye and the log in our own. We have to become a culture of a self-evaluation and encouragement and love for our brothers and sisters. I deal with my sin. It doesn't mean that I ignore yours. It means I'm open about this. I'm sincere and truthful about this. And I repent of this. Help me get out of this. God, help me get out of this. You encourage me in this. In the meantime, if I see you leading to death or leading others to death, I'm going to tell you about it. But we become very afraid. 
one of the biggest issues I feel like is, is, re, is real in the church, or maybe even in America, is we hate confronting people, at least face-to-face. Facebook, you guys are like, I hate you, you're the worst. But in real life, we are, we are kings and queens of backstabbing and like passive-aggressive, passive aggressive, whatever that word is, being passive-aggressive. The truth is, the kingdom is always about godly, loving confrontation. I love you. I don't want you to die. You do this, that's going to kill, kill the world. That's going to kill your relationships. You cheat on your wife, that's going to hurt you. Stop doing that. I'm, if I'm as a pastor and you as a brother and sister have a responsibility to point out sickness in love. And when they refuse to repent, that's when we as a church say, okay, you will not repent. You will not submit to the lordship of Christ. You're prideful in your sin. We can't be a part of this because you're bringing death to this body. Now, I'm not saying every little sin we, like, kick people out of the church. I want you to I want to clarify this. This does not, I want, I want you to understand what this looks like. This is not a witch hunt. This is not the scarlet letter where we see your sin and we post it on your chest and everybody points and laughs because we all of a sudden feel better about ourselves. That's not what this is about either. That is not the heart of this. This is not cancel out grace either. But it identifies unrepentant sin that leads to corruption and destruction. Failure to, re- to do so, failure to recognize sin is to revert back to Genesis where the fall of man is. How does Satan trip us up back in the garden? Did he really say that that would lead to death? Is that really wrong if you eat of the fruit? He doesn't want you to enjoy this. You'll be more spiritual. You'll be more enlightened. Right? Sound familiar? And that's what we often do as a culture. We look at certain sins and we say, the Bible doesn't quite say that. Does, you'll be more enlightened if we open up our hearts to this. And just, that We have to be honest and call sin, sin. Because if not, we go right back to the garden. And not the good part. Not where we're walking with God in the cool of the day. But when we're hiding with fig leaves and we're prideful and arrogant and we don't know who our creator is. We have to be honest. Church, Paul says to them in Corinthians, your body, the church, the temple is not a free-for-all. Grace is the doorway into this body, but repentance and sanctification is the air that we breathe. It's the life that we live. Make sense? We cannot twist words that we see in Scripture. So many times I've heard, well, don't judge me. Only God's my judge. The Bible says do not judge others. We twist that because we don't put it in the context. So often we take verses like, well, grace covers a multitude of sins, and then we don't recognize the thing that we're doing as sin. We act as if it's no big deal. We can't twist those words. This week I had, you guys have children. You ever have children? twist your words into meaning something else. Maybe they go from mom to dad, like, hey, mom said this, and mom's like, I didn't say that at all. I said this. And somehow that got changed. Just this last week, a week ago, we went to the Jessup Carnival. Ugh, sorry if you guys like carnivals. But I went to the Jessup Carnival. It was raining. There was like two hours left, and this lady's like just begging for attention. She's like, please, please throw, throw the balls into the thing. I'll give you a fish. I'll give you a fish. And my wife's like, all right, we'll do this. And so we're thinking, she's not going to get the fish. She's not going to win this fish. Well, Faith gets the thing in the jar, and we win a fish. 
and I'm like, I do not want to fish in my house because <laughs> now I got to buy food. I got to clean this bowl. Crystal, thankfully, not thankfully, gave us a bowl for the kids or for the fish. And so now this fish is on our kitchen island in a bowl swimming, right? And the girls on the way home were like, we should buy stuff for it. We should buy like rocks and trees and like they want it to be a cool fish bowl. And I said, no, I said, the fish isn't even going to last a week. We don't need to buy that stuff. That's just what I said. I said, it's not going li- to live a week. Well, Saturday was a week. And Haley goes, Dad, we need to go to the store and buy some rocks and stuff. for." The-. I'm like, why? You said that we would, if it lives a week, we'll go buy stuff. I'm like, I did not say that. 20 minutes later, Faith comes around the corner. Dad, today's a week. You said we could. Uh, I did not say we would buy rocks. I said, it won't live a week. I was wrong. But I'm not buying rocks for this thing. Like, I'm hoping that this week is the last. I'm kidding. All God's creatures, I want them all to live, except this fish. Um, our first fish we had when our cat was a kitten, right? And the kitten was like this big, and there was a fishbowl this big. He knocked that thing over while we were at church, and the fish died. Thank you, Leo. Our cat now is this big. Like, he's a huge cat, those who know him. Maybe that's, a, I don't know, he's a big, he's a fat cat. Somehow the first night he took the Tupperware lid off this bowl, but he did not kill the fish or take the fish out. I don't understand. Like, did he have mercy in the last second? What happened? I don't get it. Like, Leo, if you're going to do the job, do it fully. Come, commit, cat. Commit. Anyway, sorry. That's not my message this morning. I'm kidding. I love fish. PETA. There you go. Um, that's not what this is about, though. This is not about twisting the words. Paul's saying, don't twist my words. Like, we have to be a church that doesn't misunderstand what God said to us through the text, through the Scripture, right? We have to understand what he wants for his body. We see this. We saw that verse, verse 11. I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, or reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even associate with such a one. Don't even eat with them. These are sins. These are sins that corrupt multiple people. They don't just affect me, myself, and I, but they affect the testimony of the body. They affect the relationships in the body. They cause division, and they break us down. And he says, when that is happening in the church, you have to address it. Call them out. And if they won't repent, make them recognize its brokenness. Get them out of the family then because they're destroying it. That is what he's saying. Romans 6, 19-21. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. We as a body are called to sanctification. We no longer become slaves to the things that are sinful, the things that are of the flesh. We become slaves to righteousness so that we see this body look like him. That is the goal. I love that the intention here is never to hurt. It's never aggressive. It's never out of anger. It's about loving God's people and seeing repentance happen. I love that verse 5 says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is the goal. This is not an everyday, 
every little sin kind of thing. So if you're new here and you're thinking, yikes, let's get out now. They're going to expose me and yell at me. That's not what this is about at all. This is not an everyday thing. So uh, if you're new here, please don't run and hide. We, we are a loving community. We really are. This is not an everyday thing. I want you to see that there is always a difference in response by the people of God toward repentance than there is unrepentance. We are drastically different people when we look at those two things, repentance and unrepentance. I didn't know I was preaching this text, and honestly, when I got, I knew we were going through 1 Corinthians, and for some reason, this, this passage just kind of skipped my mind when I said, yeah, 1 Corinthians, that's what God wants us. And then I read this text, and I'm like, what am I preaching what am I going to do? <laughs> i got to talk about this. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit highlighted about two weeks ago, I journaled something. It just kind of came out of nowhere, and I journaled this. And this is, I feel like, the heart of today's message. There should never be, this is what I put, there should be, never be a lasting stigma or subconscious pity and comparison when someone in the church repents of sin, either privately or corporately. Let me pause right there. So often when somebody confesses in church, they're afraid of the letter A on their chest, that scarlet letter. So they don't want to repent. They're afraid of the stigma that will follow them. Well, I did this and they all know it. So now they see me as this. Right? That's what I was talking about there. If God no longer sees sin, but he sees us hidden in Christ, why do, we, why do we remember sin and demand proof or an earning of credibility and trust? The church should not think of repentance as an evil of the past, with the evil of the past in mind, but we should applaud it with the goodness of Christ, the oneness of the body, and the new life of the individual in our mind. For some reason that day I felt this strong, like we should never be a body that you're afraid to honestly repent of. When we see somebody repent, either privately, one-on-one, or corporately to the whole body, we should stand up and get excited that they were open and willing. And, the, and God looked at them like David said, look, search me, O God, and know me. They actually said, search me, O God, and know me. We should applaud that. And then the next week we shouldn't remember and put them on some kind of probationary period. Right? So many churches have done that, where somebody repents of a sin, and we're like, well, you can't lead worship anymore. you got to go through a seven-month trial. Like, we got to make sure you're holy. No, they are open and broken before God and honestly repentant. So we applaud that and say that is the work of the Holy Spirit in them. That is how the body of Christ should live. That's how we should be toward repentance. Unrepentance is very different unrepentance is like, look, you won't repent of this. You won't recognize God is clearly doing something here. And you, will, you continue to say no. That's very different. I want, I want you to see this. this is, how many of you guys have ever seen the church lady sketch on SNL, like Saturday Night Live? Like four of us. How, how old am I? Or, or maybe you're a lot older. Or maybe you're a lot, I don't know. But Dana Carvey, right? Yeah, Dana Carvey. The church lady, like, isn't that special, you know? He'd sit there and he'd be so angry and everything was the devil. That's the devil. This, this is not the church lady where we sit around in a room and say, well, you're the devil, you're awful, you're going to burn in hell. You know, that's not our goal. That's not what this is. We're not the church lady where we're sitting on our throne behind our little judging you. That's not what this is. 
This is something very different. In love, I see, man, you're going through this. Or, or you're starting to give into lust. You're starting to give in the greed, man. I see what that's doing in your life. I see how it's hurting your family. You should trust God with this. You should give up that. You should, you know, let's, let's talk about this. Do you guys understand the very different heart in this? This is not the church lady. Why? Why is repentance key in the body of Christ? Why is honest communication, sincerity and truth, as he says, why is it key? A couple months ago, I was at a, um, a conference in Orlando, a church planners conference, and the speaker got up and he was talking about his culture. He was Asian. He grew up in, I think, L.A., but Asian family. And uh, he was very smart, very, did, did like, great in school. But when he was in high school, his senior year, like he had all these scholarships to all these different schools, he got busted for leading a ring of cheating on tests. Like he was the guy. You paid him to get the information for the test. He got, bro- he got busted in school for that. And he said, I remember sitting there in, in the principal's office, and my dad comes in, he walks in, and he walks right by me, doesn't even look at me. He goes to the principal, begins to talk to the principal. They have their conversation. You know, I'm kicked out of school for a while. You know, the, he's like, he didn't make a big deal about what the punishment was. He's like, so my dad just, the ends of the conversation, walks out, walks right po- by me, doesn't say a word. He's like, I'm sitting there thinking, what do I do? And he's like, so I followed him. He gets to the car, he unlocks the car, gets in the, in the driver's seat, sits down, turns on the car, and just sits there and waits for me. Doesn't say a word. He's like, so I naturally got in the back because I didn't want to get yelled at and I didn't want to sit too close in case he wanted to punch me. So he sat in the back. He's like, we got drive the whole way home. My dad never looks at me in the mirror, never says a word. He's like, we get home, pull in the driveway. My dad gets out of the car, walks into the house, goes into the living room, sits down in his chair, and just and doesn't say a word. He's like, I'm in the car. I'm like, what do I do? So I get out. I walk in the door, and he's just sitting there in a the chair. And he's like, I stood there in front of him. And he's sitting in his chair, and I just looked at him. And all of a sudden, I saw my dad's face changed from like blankness to like pure rage, frustration, concern, tears. Like everything just changed in his face and he begins to run toward me. He's like, I thought for a moment my dad's going to attack me. And instead he dropped to the ground in front of me, put his face on the ground and began to weep and said, I'm sorry. I am so, so sorry. I have failed you as a father. And he said, my initial response was to drop to the ground, try to get lower than him and say, no, what are you talking about? I failed you as a son. What are you talking about? And his dad said, we win as a family, we lose as a family. That is the body of Christ. We win as a family or we lose as a family. I'm a big lost fan. It's live together or die alone, if you ever watch that show. That's the body of Christ. We're a family. And we should be concerned when our per- the person beside us is failing, when they're given into greed, brokenness, lust, whatever it is, it should break our hearts and we should be grieved for them and we should reach out to save them. Does that make sense this morning? We win as a family or we lose as a family. Repentance is the birthplace of new life. Repentance is the predecessor of revival. If our church is going to grow, if we're going to flourish, if we're going to receive all that God has for us, if we're going to reach our city, if we're going to love one another the way Christ loves us, if we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, if we're, if we're going to do what he has called us to do, it has to start with honest repentance in our hearts and in this body. Right? Nobody agrees. <laughs> 
One of the things I loved about our home groups this week, and maybe this will scare some of you, maybe it won't, but we split up intentionally. We don't always do men and women's. Most of the time it's in somebody's house, and it's whoever wants to come to that house that night because it works for your schedule, or you just like those people, or whatever you want to do. But we decided, you know, during our summers, the last two years, to split up men and women. Because we do realize that when it's all men in one room, there's a different vulnerability. As, and same with women. If there's all women, there's a different level of vulnerability and trust. And so we split up, and this last week, it was our first week over there. And it's really exciting to see in that group of guys, we began to share, we, we were going through the, the story of Jonah together over these next six weeks. And we began to share the areas in our lives where God has said, do this, and we've said no. Whether it's a, per, a sin that we're struggling with or it's just blatant disobedience to something God's called us to. It's vulnerability. And when we began to share these things, there wasn't like a <gasps> moment where everybody's like, you do that? How dare you? It was like, yeah, I, I struggle with that too. But yeah, man, let me pray with you for that. I'll, there was no, like, I didn't leave there thinking, man, that guy just confessed this to me. That didn't happen. Instead, that is a representation of us growing in him, of us being a family. There should not be a lack of trust. There should be real vulnerability, sincerity, and truth in our, in our body. Make sense? We're going to stand. We're going to worship. I want to encourage you to begin to examine your own heart and, and say, God, where do I need to repent of? If you, if you, I want and if you'd encourage you, I know this is a challenge. I get it. If there is a sin that you know has been holding you back or is disruptive in the body or maybe disruptive in your family or maybe just disruptive in your life, your relationship with God, I want to encourage you, feel free to repent it either to me or the person beside you or somebody that you know and trust here. It doesn't have to be me. I don't, I don't care who you do it to. But we need to be people of repentance and honesty. And I promise you, in this room, if we are focused on Christ, if we've received grace, we should be able to give grace. There's that verse that talks about we can't be forgiven unless we forgive, and that throws us all off. But if we truly understand the gospel, then how, who are we to hold somebody's past against them, right? We, we love repentance. It's, we are a people of repentance because we're being sanctified into his image. So let's worship.